Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Our question today is, what can an organization do about retaliation? I think first, I would like to talk a little bit about the data that's out there regarding reporting and retaliation so that we can all get a sense of sort of what the population of employees out there might be that are experiencing retaliation and also talk a little bit about what retaliation looks like. Because when we talk about retaliation, that can really be many different things. First, uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about data. I'm not going to get too much in the weeds, but the data I'll be citing on the podcast today is primarily from three different reports from the what used to be the Ethics Resource Center, but is now part of the Ethics and Compliance Initiative. They have a couple of different retaliation reports that have come out, two in 2012 and one in 2015. And I'll be uh, the titles of those are going to be listed in the show notes, so if you want to check those out, if you can find them online, I'm not sure if they're all available anymore on the ECI website. If you are interested in taking a look at them, just let me know. First, uh, it's important to note that there's a pretty high percentage of employees that report observing misconduct. It's been going down over the years in the United States, although the most recent survey from ECI, it seemed to spike back up in the United States. But overall, the trend had been going down over the last seven or eight years and settling in around 40%, call it. Uh, So four out of 10, uh, maybe five out of 10 if you look at the data from the Global Business Ethics Survey that just came out this year, in the United States anyway. But either way, whether it's 40 or 50%, four out of 10, five out of 10, that's a pretty significant percentage of your population, of an employee population that is uh, reporting that they've observed misconduct. The other consistent number over the last few years is the percentage of employees that then report what they see. It's usually around 60%. And many of the surveys over the years, both ECI and other uh, surveying groups have found that that's pretty consistent. So about six out of 10 of those, call it 50% of employees that have observed misconduct are reporting it. So that's about 16% of your total population that is observing misconduct but not reporting it. So that's an important figure to keep in mind. 15% see misconduct but consistently don't report it overall. And then the last number, and I'll stop quoting figures at you and and you can just look at these reports offline if you'd like to, is uh, 21% of employees in the 2012 and 2015 surveys reported experiencing retaliation after they were reported. So basically one out of five employees that went ahead and reported misconduct that they observed then stated that they had experienced some sort of retaliation. Interestingly, the ECI, ECI breaks this down in the new global business ethics survey and by slicing and dicing the employees that were in organizations that had organizational changes versus those that didn't, they found a correlation that if you were in an organization that had zero changes, little organizational change, then it was pretty consistent, 21%, 20%, one out of five experienced retaliation. However, if you were in an organization that had had four to seven organizational changes over the recent past, it spiked almost all the way up to 50%. It was 46% 
of individuals that reported also stated that they had experienced retaliation. So key factor here is the intersection of uh, misconduct going on when there's a lot of organizational change also going on. The perception of retaliation seems to spike pretty significantly. So what does retaliation look like to individuals? Well, when we think of retaliation, it can really cover a lot of different elements. And here are just some of the things that people have reported in the past uh, experiencing and that they uh, characterized as retaliation. Intentionally being ignored or treated differently by supervisors, other employees ignoring or treating that individual differently, uh, excluded from particular projects or decisions or work uh, events, being verbally abused. I mean, that's a pretty straight up one that I think we can all uh, relate to by managers or supervisors or being verbally abused by other workers or other employees. Not being given up the promotion or the raise or the particular project that uh, was expected. And uh, losing the job, uh, actually being fired is, uh, is uh, reported in about 40% of these uh, retaliation cases. What we find is, is that the more common uh, retaliation experienced or perceived is that uh, uh, you're being treated differently, and it might be more nuanced. Less common is direct harassment uh, or physical harassment, which is actually uh, is, is reported at about 16 or 17 percent of the cases in, in some of the more recent surveys, but are being fired or being demoted. Uh, those uh, happen, but they're less frequent than these kind of broader treat being the, the the employee feeling that they're being treated differently so it's important when you're thinking about what retaliation looks like uh, in these cases that it can be very nuanced and it's and it's all about the perception of the individual who has been the reporter as to how the retaliation is affecting them so we we know this perception is out there we know that there is a significant percentage of employees that cite retaliation or fear of retaliation for the reason as the main reason they do not report or they do not come forward and engage about perceived misconduct. So how do you address it? How do you address it as a manager? How do you address it as a compliance officer? Well, the data also provides some insight to that. When ECI asked the question in the context as as to whether the employee believed that the management of their organization considered ethics considered uh, compliance in their decision-making process, there is a stark difference in the percentage of reporters. There's almost a 20 percentage point differential when the employee believes that top management and supervisors have a commitment or consider ethics in the decision-making process as to whether they're more likely to report. And uh, remember, uh, this perception of retaliation is, 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 uh, is a bigger issue than actual retaliation. There are potentially a significant percentage of these individuals that are not reporting that perceive or fear retaliation, whether it exists or not. And if they believe that uh, management considers ethics, that ethics is uh, integral to the decision-making process, then they're much more likely to report. So having an effective communication program uh, about uh, the importance of ethics in the workplace and the non-retaliation policy of the organization and reiterating that uh, on a frequent basis so that the information is out there clearly has an effect in, in how, people come, how, how frequently people will come forward and report misconduct. The most important relationship here is between the supervisor and manager 
and the employee that observes a misconduct or potentially observes a misconduct and would uh, and has to make the decision about reporting. Where the rubber meets the road here, what we know also from from past data in the uh, ECI surveys is that the vast majority of employees prefer to report to their supervisors. And in fact, 82% report to their supervisor at some point, whereas only about 16% report using a hotline at some point. It's a vast gulf between uh, the individuals that prefer or as a first line, uh, go to a hotline versus their uh, immediate supervisor. So if the communication from and to that supervisor is clear about non-retaliation and clear about the importance of reporting and about the ethical culture of the organization, then it makes it much more likely that that uh, reporting line will be open and it will be used. Beyond uh, engaging those frontline managers and making sure that they are a proper conduit, overall culture seems to matter very significantly in the reporting percentage. Again, looking at ECI data, organizations that where the employees report a strong or strong leading culture report a significantly higher numbers than those that report a weak or weak leading culture. Uh, 80% in those strong or strong leading cultures tend to report when they observe misconduct. That's very high. Whereas in a weak or weak leading culture, it's all the way down to 50%. And along going hand in hand with having a positive ethical culture or perceived importance of ethics within the organization is having an effective program, having the nuts and bolts of an, a program that follows the seven hallmarks of the sentencing guidelines for an effective program. ECI also found this to be true, that they they looked at elements like written standards and training, having uh, reporting mechanisms, uh, having consistent discipline. When all of these things were were in place, they found that the level of reporting, those who uh, were comfortable coming forward and reporting, and the perception of uh, retaliation both went up in the numbers that reported and the perception of retaliation went down. So there's a correlation between having an ethical culture and that positive messaging flowing through management and flowing through the local manager to the employee having an effect, but also having these strong elements of a a compliance program in place as well. To give you the broad numbers on that, when they measured that none of these factors of an effective program existed, only 33 or a third uh, of the employees, 33%, uh, ended up reporting in those circumstances. And when uh, six factors, uh, including, again, um, things like training and and an effective reporting mechanism existed, 84% of uh, employees would report misconduct. And then on the retaliation issue, if none of these factors existed, if there was not a well-structured program, 53% of reporters reported uh, experiencing retaliation or fearing retaliation. Whereas if all of those elements existed, if you had the elements of, a, of an effective program in place, only 4% of those employees in those organizations reported experiencing retaliation. That's an extremely low number. For those of you that measure fear of retaliation or perceived retaliation within your um, your organization as part of your culture survey on a regular basis, getting to 4% is pretty significant. And what, uh, what ECI found uh, in, in these studies is that organizations that really work on 
uh, both having an ethical culture, but also having those structural pieces of the program in place that highly correlates with having a low retaliation number. So again, I threw a lot of numbers out there and I, I, I don't mean to confuse everybody with numbers. The bottom line here is that there is a high correlation between having an effective compliance and ethics program, focusing on communication at the local manager level to the employees directly, to encourage people not only to come forward when they observe misconduct and bump up the percentage of employees that are reporting, but also drive down that sometimes stubborn uh, perception of retaliation that exists in many organizations around reporting. The upshot this week is, when you're trying to address reporting and retaliation concerns at your organization, the important thing to focus on is having an effective compliance and ethics program, including the structural pieces of the compliance program, as well as a focus on ethical culture and communication. Today we have three questions with Che Embry. Che is an executive director for compliance from Hill Rom's Global Compliance Office located in Chicago. Che graduated from the University of Iowa in 2000 with a Bachelor of Business Administration, MIS, and in 2012, he received his MBA in Healthcare Management from the Quinlan School of Business at Loyola University, Chicago. His past work experience includes companies such as Ernst & Young, Protivity, TAP Pharmaceuticals, and Takata Pharmaceuticals. He has extensive experience in developing new compliance programs from scratch, including training, communications, investigations, policy management, auditing and monitoring, vendor assessment tools, executive dashboards, and conducting risk assessments. Also, Che has specific experience in implementing programs to fulfill the requirements of corporate integrity agreements and independent review organization audits at two respective companies. Welcome, Che. Hello, Eric. Thanks for having me. Che, can you tell us a little bit about your career journey? How did you end up in compliance? Yeah, sure. It's, uh, it's kind of a strange one. I know a lot of people that I work with in compliance have more of the traditional legal background. I actually started out my first few years in IT consulting where I was a database programmer. Left that actually just to leave a geographic area and move to Colorado. Jobs were tight at that time. Then I did sales for four or five years, which I always mention that to people because I think it's very important and how it's helped me be, I think, successful or at least relate to the sales people that I, that I talk with now in a, in a compliance role. After that, I went back into kind of IT consulting, but from an audit perspective. So I was doing IT audit, a lot of Sarbanes-Oxley work. And at the time, I was having my first child. And, I, and at, at that time, I was traveling a lot. I had my first child, and one of my former bosses and, and colleagues was leaving to a pharmaceutical company that was under a CIA. And I needed somebody to run the audit program. And specifically, that specific CIA, which was the largest at the time, the last two years, you're able to actually do the IRO or internal review, an independent review organization internally. And so then I led up our IRO and our drug price reporting audit for that company. And that's really how I got into compliance. And I was really naive at the time. I didn't know what a CIA was. I mean, I did my research, but I really didn't have any understanding by, you know, compliance, but, you know, developed their audit program for them. And then since then, you know, companies have been bought out and I've changed roles, but I've just progressively had more of a what I would call general management or, you know, developed or progressed in a strategic compliance role. So I still do a lot of audit work or oversee audit work, but it's transitioned into all the different elements of a compliance program role. So 
um, my role has slowly expanded to, to more general but larger elements or more encompassing elements of the client. And I do think the sales piece has been very important for my success as well as the audit piece because I really I really think compliance is is kind of there's the legal element of it, but it's also like, okay, how do we implement these process controls? And I think that's where my strength comes in is I'm, re- I'm really focused on process and control a lot of the times. Yeah. My, my, my perspective has been for, for many years now that uh, getting more operational people involved in compliance, you know, provides all the benefits that you're, you're, you're alluding to when you talk about sales is, you know, you have that experience to kind of, I've been there, brother. I know, I know what you're right. going through and, and, and you can relate to the people in operations in a way, maybe a lawyer or an auditor, people who kind of traditionally have compliance responsibilities may not relate if they don't have that specific uh, work experience. Do you, do you see it as a trend? Because I, I, I kind of, it's hard to know anecdotally, right? You talk to a lot of people, but I'm hopeful it's a trend. Do you do you see people um, coming from an operational background into compliance as a trend? Yeah, I mean, I, I see it in the function that I'm in. I think it's probably, you know, I, I don't know, the specific number, 60% operational or more business background, um, mm-hmm. 40% legal. I think yeah. it's an important mix to have. I can issue spot being in the compliance world for, for 10 years, at least in the healthcare life science. But I, I definitely rely on my you know, legal colleagues, you know, if it's either in the legal department or the individuals within my function that have a legal background to break it down from a legal perspective to make sure that I'm not missing anything. And a lot of times they come to me to understand, you know, how would you implement this? How would you project management? Who are the right people to talk to? And I think it, I think it is a trend, but I also see a lot of times when people are starting out compliance programs, they want people with just legal backgrounds. And if I were to run my own department, it, it would be a mix of, of everybody. It would be what I would be looking for, for sure. Yeah. No, I, I, I like to think it's a trend because I think, uh, I think the, all the benefits that you talk about are, are benefits that I see as well. The next question is if uh, we, we talked about your journey and, and if there's one consistency about a compliance journey is it's kind of a, a twisty path. But if you could go back uh, before you had compliance uh, responsibilities, before you undertook the compliance role and tell your younger self one, th- one piece of advice, what would that one piece of advice be? I, I think uh, I've always been fairly outgoing, kind of an extrovert and social in nature. I think the, at first I underappreciated and underestimated kind of the resistance you just inherently get in being in a compliance role. So I, I think that would be one piece of advice that, you know, I would I would have given myself to not underestimate that. I think me being an extrovert, you know, can hold a social conversation with about anybody has actually helped me in my role to dispel that inherent notion that compliance is out to get you. So that's probably one piece of advice that I would give myself. And I think one thing I've done well is because I get bored easily um, just to continue to take on, if it is different elements or different projects or different risk areas to continue to continuously develop. And that's what I like about compliance. It's so, so broad that you can learn so many different things across so many different businesses globally. No, I think that's, that's good. good. Both of those are, are good points and good advice for anybody starting out. Now, uh, lastly, if you could peer into your compliance and ethics crystal ball just a little bit for us um, from the front lines, so to speak, what are one or two trends that you think are going to be very important over the coming years in compliance and ethics? I know everybody says this, but I truly believe it. And maybe it's 
because you know I come from a little bit of a data background. But I really do think having the ability, I think, I think especially since resources are always tight in every organization and, and especially probably in compliance, you know, the data monitoring or data analytical piece, you know, how do you monitor live or at least in fairly real time? What can you look at and monitor from a data perspective and get real time feedback or, you know, within the next, within a few days feedback that highlight risks if it's a financial tra- transaction or or whatever it is to alert compliance or whoever the appropriate people would need to be to review that, to assess the risk and take action. I think you can do that successfully now with audits, but it's always you know three months, six months uh, mm-hmm. prior the conduct is. But 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 being able to do that in real time with the data that we can receive, I think is where I think compliance should go and is heading. But nobody knows how to do it, or very few companies know how to do it, and mm-hmm. it's something that you know I'm currently struggling with as well, or trying to figure out. And then two, I think I wouldn't have said this a couple of weeks ago, but since the you know the new the new president we're going to have, and it's going to be Republican troll, controlled House, you know Republican controlled presidency, all, all arms of the government. I think it'll be interesting to see where the focus on compliance will be going from a governmental standpoint, and and will that change it? I don't know, but you know how is the enforcement action going to change if it does? What are the what are the different laws that are that are going to be enacted and, and enforced? I think that'll be an interesting trend to watch out for. What industries are going to be hit hard or not hit, or those type of things? I think will be an interesting that I don't know how to answer yet. Yeah, no, it's hard to know, right? Uh, it really a lot of it depends on who is uh, running the Justice Department. I think right. uh, there's a, the the one thing that uh, seems to be true with the candidates that you know, and we're here in just a couple of days after the election right now. The candidates that are out there are career prosecutors. So one would think that that the 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 kind of tradition traditional prosecution bent uh that's been going on for the last 15 or 20 years would continue no uh, you know a pace, but it's hard to know. And and it's hard to know like you said maybe somebody else's ox will get court uh rather than the industries that have seen uh a lot of enforcement and a lot of re- regulation over the last few years, but it is, if nothing else it's uh it it, it, it will ensure some some uh, job security for people because it's uncertain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, one that hits current, like a, a medical device company that builds Medicare, Medicaid, you know, with Papaca, there was changes in Papaca that I think changed the False Claims Act, essentially where, you know, the look back period that you have to report your overpayments and your look back period goes to five or six years. Is that going to change? We, like we just worked all that out internally in the last year and a half from an overpayment to Medicare, Medicaid perspective. Now, is that if, if PAPACA gets repealed or pieces of it get repealed, is that going to change yet again? That's just one example that I think it hits home like tactically as far as like the medical device world. Yeah. It'll be interesting. It will be. And the, the uh, We're going to be living in interesting times, but that's always true when you're in compliance. It's always interesting. Right. <laughs> right. right. Well, Jay, I can't thank you enough for spending a little time with us and, and answering our three questions. Oh, of course. And, uh, you know, I love the podcast that you're doing. I think it's great. Um, and unsol- for compliance professionals to hear from other, other people. I, and, and I, and I, I, and I love unsolicited praise. So thank you so much, Jay. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.